Welcome to Backlogs, an arts management podcast series where we delve into the histories and evolving practice of arts management in Singapore. The world of arts management is a vast and wide-ranging one, and this podcast series is a humble attempt at beginning to map this world and chart its growth. I'm Charlene Shepperson, taking over from Serene Chen to dive into the literary arts half of the series. The previous episodes hosted by Serene took us through some of the key movers in the theatre scene during these decades, which included policymakers, festival administrators and production managers working in theatre companies. Through these conversations, we noticed how all our guests' career paths intertwined at various points, forming this symbiotic network that we refer to as the arts ecosystem. It's clear to see that an entire ecosystem is required to enable the arts to thrive. Apart from artists, you need the infrastructure and the people who keep the infrastructure going, but also people who work in ancillary services. This is evident in the literary arts, which is more than just the lone writer at the desk. You need the publishers, agents, booksellers and librarians who work to promote authors and develop a culture of reading. While the arts manager in the literary arts context was not a clearly defined professional role during the 1980s, this episode, as well as the next, provides critical contextual background on the literary arts ecosystem. In particular, we'll spotlight the people behind the ancillary systems required to sustain the literary arts. For this episode, we shine the spotlight on Hedrick Anwar, one of the most prominent driving forces of the literary scene, for her role in promoting, developing and shaping the public libraries in Singapore as well as being a founding member of the National Book Development Council of Singapore, also called NBDCS. Today, it's known as the Singapore Book Council. To share more about her role, we have R. Ramachandran and Michelle Heng. Let me give you a bit of introduction to both of them. So Mr. R. Ramachandran, who I'll call Mr. Rama from this point on, he has a very long relationship with Hedrick Anwar. He was a trained librarian who first worked with Mrs. Anwar to develop Singapore's National Library And over the period of the years, he has taken over some of her roles as well. Between 1996 to 1998, he was a director of NLB. Between 1998 to 2004, he took over as the chairperson of the National Book Development Council of Singapore. And in 2005, he became the executive director of National Book Development Council of Singapore, 17 years after Anwar retired. Hello, Mr. Ramachandran. Hello. It's nice to have you here today. Thank you so much. We also have Michelle Heng, who is currently a librarian at the Lee Kun Chien Reference Library, where she has been for the past 12 years. Just before that, she worked with the National Library Board as an independent researcher for two years. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Charlene. Nice to see you again. Yes. <laughs> now, Michelle's quite special to us in this episode because she also actually helped to handle the Hedrick Anwar donor collection in 2016. So she has a rare preview to Mrs. Anwar's numerous libraries and books during that process. So let me give the listeners a brief history of the library system in Singapore. Although the entity we know as the National Library Board, or NLB, was formed on 1st of September 1995, its history goes further back to 1823, when Sir Stanford Raffles proposed the idea of establishing a public library in the colony, and in 1845, it opened to the public on a monthly subscription basis. Over a century later, in 1953, philanthropist Lee Kun Chien donated money towards the establishment of a free public library. This entity evolved into the National Library of Singapore in 1960 with the old National Library building at Stanford Road before expanding to the suburbs with branch libraries. 
It was in this pivotal year, 1960, that Hedwig Anwar became the first Singaporean to be director of the National Library, a position she would hold for more than two decades. Hedwig Anwar was born in 1928 and 1952 joined the University of Malaya Library as a library assistant. In 1955, the institution granted her a scholarship to study library studies in London, after which she was sent to the Kuala Lumpur branch of the University of Malaya to establish the library there, before her appointment as a director of the National Library. Anwar was a trailblazer in many ways. At the time of her appointment, there were few librarians who were non-expatriates. Being the first Singaporean director, Anwar recognised that there were not enough books to reflect local life and not enough books in different languages. Her goal was to make sure the library served everyone equally well and be the first reference library in Southeast Asia. She established the Book Selection Policy Manual, which took into account Singapore's four major languages, as well as readers, age groups, literacy levels, purpose of reference, among other factors. So that was a lot about Hedrick Anwar, but I would just like to know, Mr. Rama, because you met her yourself, when did you first meet Hedrick Anwar and what were your impressions of her? Yes, <clears throat> I was a teacher before, a teacher librarian, so transition to a library was quite, quite easy. But when I first joined the National Library, it was 1969, and uh, I went and saw Mrs. Anwar. I had uh, always was interested in library work, and therefore I was a teacher librarian before. And Mrs. Anwar, uh, I joined the National Library because it was a growing institution at that time, and it was grew to, to level it is now today. And when I first met her, I was interested in reference services. But she very clearly said uh, her policy is not to uh, get first-timers involved in reference services, but in public service. And public service is the one that really you, really you must know because ultimately the public library services need to be expanded and the community comes to the public library, not to reference so much to reference library. So therefore, she emphasized public library system. And she said, you would be posted not to the reference services, as I felt that I should, because as a graduate, you felt that you must be in reference services. But she directed me to the public library services. And that's a strong point, because in that, I came to know that her emphasis for public library services at this point of time not reference services, which was elitish, in public library services, which was normal. And that was very important. Because she was, I think in that sense, she followed the American system, where the American system was public library services, and public library services were regarded as people's university. You know, everybody can go, everybody can get informed. And therefore, in that sense, she gave me a right direction in the very beginning, to go to public library services. So based on what you're saying, what was Hedwig Anwar's vision of what a librarian should be or how should they interact with the community? Yes, I think her main intention was, though she was in, in, in qualification, though she was an academic librarian, she turned Singapore into a public library service. The National Library, it's only at that point, 
a national library, but actually it was essentially a public library system. Because reference library was was a small part of the national library system. So the public library system was very important for her. And that's why for her, the public librarian is also to interact with the public service and also with all the community involved, with the politicians, with the, uh, with the funders, with all, everybody. So therefore, she understood the public librarian and therefore she became a very important source of information to library services in that sense. Thank you so much for that, Mr. Rama. Michelle, how about you? Like, when was the first time you heard of the name Hedrick Anwar? Yeah, well, I first saw a photograph of uh, Mrs. Hedrick Anwar along with her sister, um, uh, Marie Bong, and a friend. And it was in a yearbook that my sister had brought home. It's the Convent of the Holy Infant Jesus School Annual Magazine. And... Um, I recall seeing that photograph because underneath was a caption that read, our first BA graduates. So I guess this was in the early 1950s. In that yearbook, they showed archives of the pictures of uh, the first graduates. And I was very impressed because I guess I had a deep hunger to learn how to read. And I looked up to her. And I've got a poem here written by Mrs. Hedwig Anwar in the yearbook, the 1983 yearbook, which is available in our e-resources page and Books SG. So here goes. Reflections on doing homework, first written in 1948 and republished in the 1983 yearbook. To do or not to do, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to regain the smiles and favours of a despairing teacher or to bring on an onslaught of threatening words and quaking face one's doom, to sigh to rest, no more, and by rest to say I and the headache and the thousand nagging puzzles that wreck my brain, tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. So, as you can see, she was very witty. Her early writings, of course, were parodies of the literature that she read. This is obviously Shakespearean. One of the first memories that I had also was that I used to read uh, news articles about AWARE and how she was a founding member. And she had donated uh, a large collection of her personal documents, including documents from AWARE and photographs as well. And... What really impressed me was that apart from how she advocated for rights in Singapore, women's rights, I also saw that she made concrete steps to make the lives of many women better. She was part of the Society for Reading and Literacy and she initiated a program called Women Learning English WISH. So the Society for Reading and Literacy members ran this program by teaching homemakers illiterate in English to read and speak functional English so that they would be able to read signs, engage in basic literacy through asking questions and talking to shopkeepers. So this program apparently was uh, very successful and satisfying. So successful that by, I think, maybe two decades later, it was no longer necessary because more and more people already knew English. I was impressed with that because my own parents cannot read and write in English. And to this day, my mother cannot read MRT signs and has to memorize the MRT stops. So I was very impressed um, by what she did and what the members of SRL did. Mm. 
And two things I think she said, which is very important. One was the wittiness part of it. The wittiness, I remember, is a personal account. When I, later on in my life, I was transferred to reference services. And then, as I was going out, whenever, when you're transferred, you have to go and see Mrs. Anwar, because she will then let you know what to do in reference services and so on. And then she told me, the girls at reference services are not for loan, but they are only for reference. That was the extent of a wit, you know, and she was very witty. And then the other, mentioned, Michelle mentioned, Society for Literacy. She formed the society and she formed and made it part of the NBDC Book Council. And therefore, she was able to form society editors, society of many things. And then they became institutional member of the NBDCS, which was connected to, to the Book Council and the library as well. I think something that you both have mentioned is how Mrs. Anwar was very interested in trying to make the library more accessible as well. And you both kind of alluded to that. Could you share maybe, Michelle, I think you have a personal anecdote as well about how the library became a very accessible place for you growing up. Oh, yes. So actually, I grew up borrowing books from Queenstown Public Library as well as Bugimera. And I was very grateful growing up because as, as I mentioned, my parents are illiterate and I was able to access as many books as I could because our library has a wonderful collection of children's books and many other books as well and more importantly I think Mrs. Anwar and her early group of staff as well which is a legacy that's continued today is that there were many reading programs for children. I recall Mr. Rama reading to us in Queenstown Public Library <laughs> and storytelling sessions we were able to access the world of children's stories that were not accessible to us, especially those of us uh, whose parents were unable to read to us. And I recall that as I progressed through the different reading stages in my life, I think by the age of 14, I was reading about 200 books a year under uh, Dr. Lina Ho, who was also, she was part of the uh, research fellows, I think at that time, who did a research program tracking our reading habits. So Mrs. Anwar and her staff were very, very instrumental in these, I would say, literacy programs, as well as studies to find out the reading habits of Singaporeans, especially important in society at that time and even now. I just want to pick up on two points that she made about Queenstown. <clears throat> Queenstown was the first library that was built. And I remember having joined the library service recently in 69 and standing there and watching how the Queenstown library developed. And when I, at, at the beginning, she wanted, the Queenstown library was opened by none other than the Prime Minister. So that was very important because she wanted us, the librarians, know that it's very important to involve the politicians. And Lee Konyu was very interested in library service. And that helped us to develop the library services much more. And then the, the other thing that she mentioned was children's books. She emphasized not only children, 
but she wanted to emphasize young people as well. And it was her, at that point, in many libraries all over the world, there were children's services and adult services. There were never young people services. But she picked up this idea from the American libraries. America had young people services, and she was able to copy the American system here in Singapore. And that was very, even now, Young People's Services has been treasured and flowered. Yeah. And if I recall correctly as well, like the Young People's Service, when it was started up, was also around the same period of time where she started the school libraries as that well, time. right? And that's partly what drew you to sure. this role sure. that you're doing now. Maybe just a bit of context for our listeners. As Mr. Rama pointed out, Queenstown Community Library was actually the first branch library that was opened in 1970. At that point, they aimed to have a new branch every one to two years. So the next one was Topayo Community Library, which opened in 1974, followed by Bukit Mera in 1982, Amokyo in 1985. Bedok also opened that same year. That was my home library. Yeah, and then followed by that, we also had Geelang East as well as Jurong East in 1988. The importance of the libraries is that it, the branch libraries is that it, it sort of uh, went to the community where the libraries were, uh, where the people were. So, so that's very important because uh, then the people ha had no problem of accessing the library. So she made libraries more accessible. And now, of course, the same tradition has been carried on where libraries have, have been spattered around in community centres and also in malls as well. Mm. I understand, Mr. Rama, that in the opening of the branch libraries, that the book the database was also more culturally relevant to the communities at that point as well. Indeed. Could you share a little bit about the book selection process? The book selection process is a very tedious process and that's what Ms. Sanu emphasised, that every book does not, must be selected and therefore... The bookshop is different from a library. Bookshop only sells the bestsellers, you know. And the bookshop, uh, as different from library, is that it promotes the books, but it promotes the bestsellers only. But the book librarian selects the books, he curates the books, and therefore he becomes a well-known person in the community as well because he takes care of children's needs. And therefore, it becomes very important for children. And not only that, in the selection of books at that time was very important because it was locally suited, must be suited. And local books were not available at that time, especially for children. But then the Asian communities in America and other diaspora, we wrote books for children at that time. And for American audience, but still, relevant to Singapore audience as well. So that that was a very important part of Singapore and our contribution was a very sort of manual-like, which was a selection policy which she created. So having a more culturally relevant book database allowed the library to lose its label as a haven for the upper class and English educated becoming a people's library. Accessibility is of crucial importance in developing an information literate society and increased accessibility was a significant development in the library system that took place during Hedrick's time at the National Library. 
During that time, the library went from a single building in Stanford Road to having nine branches around the island, leading to membership ballooning from about 40,000 to 330,000. Another initiative was the mobile library systems. The branch libraries phased out the mobile library system which was started in 1960. They had the aim of connecting the library to those in rural districts and eased the problem of overcrowding at the National Library building. It used all army vehicles loaded with books. The first one was loaded with children's books to visit the Naval Base School in Nisun. It was a great success by the end of September 1960. The van had visited 37 primary schools and attracted some 2,300 children to join as library members. The warm reception resulted in more than 10 service points located at community centres in diverse housing estates such as Pasir Panjang, Bukit Panjang, Chongpang and Changi. The mobile library vehicles visited various primary schools and community centres once every fortnight. Each vehicle carried over 2,000 books in all four official languages, English, Chinese, Malay and Tamil, and would operate from 5pm to 7pm as this was generally a convenient time for both working adults and children to use its facilities. The mobile libraries continued to reach out to more communities over the next couple of decades until it was phased out in 1991. So, Michelle, could you share a little bit about how Mrs. Anwar helped to cultivate a culture, uh, a nation of readers? Yes, uh, Charlene, as you mentioned, that was the start of the mobile library service in 1960. And it had brought the library to 35 schools and rural districts and community centres. And I think the wonderful thing that she did was that she promoted the service by screening short documentaries in the cinema. So you can imagine the, the kind of uh, wide reach it had because everybody goes to the cinemas for entertainment. So reading became not a chore, but actually entertainment. And then in 1966, she started the Young People's Service for uh, library members, age 15 to 19. And this was a sort of like club and a sort of like hangout place of teenage reading clubs, drama groups, and young writers' circle. So she tried to promote the arts, literary arts, amongst young people. And many of these young people then grew up to be authors, educators, who really benefited from these services. And then by the 1970s, she started this weekly radio magazine program for Radio Singapore called Our Library. Extracts from books book reviews, uh, news, and also highlights of events at the library. So really, it was sort of like a massive promotion of uh, our library services and really brought the kind of programs that we had, the kind of collection that we had to the people of Singapore. And by the 1980s, of course, these had progressed to national reading fortnightly or monthly campaigns from 1982 to 1985 at more than 30 venues at public libraries, community centres and shopping malls. So at that time, it was quite a, I would say, progressive idea to bring reading to shopping malls. Yeah, and I personally, I recall a lot of events, very fun events, like for example, um, local authors such as Adrian Tan, he would come to branch libraries to speak about his books, autograph, and all of us would bring our books to be autographed by him. There were many, many other writers as well. And of course, there were skits and performances at shopping malls. And I thought that it was so cool. It still is. The other point that she mentioned was the media. Mrs. Anwar was always sought after by media, unlike most librarians now, for example. And she was a media person and she cultivated the media people. And 
everything she did was became public news. So that 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 was very important as well. I think she not only cultivated media persons, but politicians and the community people as well. So she looked upon the library as a total service to the community. Mr. Rama, could you share maybe one of your personal recollections, like your favourite memory of Mrs. Anwar in doing a media-related thing? Yes. One point was that during the during those times, there was also a bomb threat in the library as well. And there was an anonymous caller who called Mrs. Anwar saying there's a bomb. But actually, it was not a bomb. But Mrs. Anwar took it seriously and vacated the library. And... Every staff and every community member who was in the library was very difficult to get out of the library. You know, and she made it a point to get out, and she was the last person to get out of the library in that sense. This was, at that time, was publicly known and reported, in the pretty, reported by the media. And it was the fact that she was the last person to come was instrumental in saying that she cared for our staff and people in that sense. That was very important. So she so wouldn't leave until everyone Everybody had left. has left, that's right. So I think it's a good time for us to actually talk a little bit as we're talking about accessibility as well about the kind of technology that Mrs. Anwar introduced to the library as well to make it more user-friendly and how she brought the library to be more forward, more future forward as well. Mr. Rama, I, I understand that I think in Singapore Writers Festival last year, you mentioned that she actually helped to pioneer the computerization of the library services in 1985 after attending an introductory course on computerization at NUS. Can you share a little bit about what kind of technology was yes. involved? Even before that, she had instrumental in bringing the audiovisual aids because for her, the library was not a book library. It was an information place, a place for information. For any library was a container of information in those days. So therefore, it was obviously largely books. But as library progressed, audiovisual came in, microfiche came in, and microfilms came in, and she adapted them. And even in the 1980s, even before the computers came, she was already a librarian in that sense because she was information-oriented. And, when she, and she, that's why she formed the Silas Committee. Silas is a Singapore Integrated Union Catalogue. Union, in those days, the catalogues of the library contained all the information that's in the library. But catalogues of all of Singapore, how to bring them together? And she computerized that. That was even before 1985. And then in 1985, when she... She was appointed uh, to, to become a, become a co, what you call, she attended a course during the computerization time. She at once ordered all, for all the staff computers in the library. I still remember at that time just typing, learning computer work at that time in 1985-86. So in that sense, she already bring, brought computers in the library as well for staff in the beginning. Maybe I can add something related to the proliferation of computerization in libraries. As, a, as someone who has benefited from that, I recall as a child, I wanted to find books 
but it was we go by of course now I know that we go by DDC numbers right but you know as an end user you don't really know what's the Dewey Decimal System so you, you just go around the shelves looking for books then one day I was told by a branch librarian you can use this computer just type in the title that you want to find out and I recall very clearly it was there was an image of an octopus and it was I think it was called at that time online public access OPEC it's still there's still a system you know now and I was very very impressed like wow I can just by typing in the title I can find out a book. This was very early on. Of course, now it's so much more progressive in the sense that you can search for almost anything online in our e-resources page, from newspaper archives to journal articles. But at that time, it was as an end user, I felt that it was so useful. Yeah. I think one other point to emphasize is that the OPEC, which Michelle mentioned that, through OPEC also you can find what you have do not have in the libraries, in National Library, but in other libraries as well. So Silas was the medium to find it out. So you could, f f you can book a library, book a book in, in the university library if you want, because it's not in the, available in the National Library. So in that sense... Which are still systems that exist today, right? Of like I mean, so, and it's really just like the fact that when we use OneSearch right now, I can actually, you know, find a sure. book in Bukit Batok, you know, and I have to travel there or reserve it and bring it to my library. But it's so interesting to hear that this started out so much earlier as well. Mr. Rama, you mentioned a little bit about how she bought comp like computers for everybody. Was there any resistance in terms of this adapting to a new technology? I think there wasn't. Because I remember Mrs. Tarun Bulawel is Mrs. Who was in charge of children's services. Very, very old lady, you know, at that time. Even old ladies began typing. <laughs> to me, it was, as a young man at that time, you know, was, was something new to me, you know. Because here you go on saying that old people cannot learn. But yes, she was learning at that time. And, and, and there was no, no resistance, of course. Sorry, this is a legacy that's continued that Mrs. Anwar has left for all of us at the library. The fact that we embrace technology at the library, this has been brought to the fore in the current condition where we have a pandemic. We were unable to reach a lot of our patrons when we have programs. Usually, they come to the library. So we were wondering, what do we do during shutdowns, social distancing measures? So then we very quickly embraced how to use Zoom. We taught ourselves and we were also given lessons by our very capable colleagues. And we started broadcasting our programs such as A Librarian's World from our living rooms and also our study rooms at home. And at first, there was a little bit of, I would say, apprehension because we were not too sure how it would be received. But you know, it was so popular. It is still very popular. And the comments that are given by our patrons are real-time. So we are able to reach out to them at real-time and then immediately answer them through the chat system. Yeah. Mr. Raman, just now you mentioned that there wasn't much resistance from the staff in adopting the technology. Do you think that's partly in due to the kind of leader that Mrs. Adwa was? Yes, I think so. I think it trickled down to you know, everybody else. And, 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 and then she was very personal in her attitude towards people and she's an open door policy as you know and once I remember she 
coming to shelves, and she always comes to shelves to pick up books, you know, and pick up those books that are old and tattered, and then she will discard them. And then she came to my desk, I think, and then she told me, how are you faring? And then everything is okay, Mrs. Sanwa, except that my wife has delivered a baby, and my wife and my baby are sick. What are you doing here? And then I packed my bags and I went to the hospital straight away. So that was the extent of her personal involvement in staff matters. There's also another legacy that has continued because when I first joined the library, I was being mentored by our senior librarians. And then we have a buddy system whereby new you know, librarians are able to learn the ropes. And it's very much an apprenticeship system apart from our formal qualifications in information studies or library studies, for example. And to this day, our uh, supervisors, our directors will always have an open-door policy. They will always tell us, you know, if there's anything you want to share with me, my office doors are open to you. You just send me an email, let's book a time and we can chat. I'm so grateful for that. I think at this point, I'd like to mention the fact that for, for Mrs. Anwar, librarian was called. Called to the, you mentioned about eco-ecosystem. The core in the ecosystem, because at that time, library was everything. I mean, there was no museum, there was a museum, but no, uh, no emphasis on museum. But library was everything. And library became the core, and booksellers and publishers and everybody was not taken as core, but librarians were core, and they developed the system. And they kind of became like a lifestyle choice as well exactly. because it was something that people at the time could engage with um, sure. on a regular basis as well. Mrs. Anwar considered library as core to the book world. That's very important, you know, because in the book world at that time, the booksellers, the publishers, all were salesmen. You know, they their offices overseas. And so in, in that sense, it's very important because she made the librarian, and today too, as the librarians are the most educated and most well-organized people in the, in the library service. Not the publishers, though they claim otherwise, but the publishers were developed by the National Library and the Book Council. See, that's why the whole writer's world, in the world of books or information, were developed in the beginning by the Book Council and the Library. That's very important, you see. The, the, the core message to come because the people don't accept this, but it is the library world that created other worlds. But that's so interesting as well because I think we see the library as non-profit, right? And we see exactly. it as a place where we go to, but the fact that in Singapore at least it helped to start this entire ecosystem. Exactly. In other countries, it's the, the, pub, the publishers who drove the library, the booksellers who drove the library, but here it's the other way around. It's a library that drives yeah. a lot yeah. of uh, programs, exactly. a lot of initiatives. Yeah. Like I said, people will come to the reference counter and ask me, uh, what does it take to be a receptionist here? <laughs> so many people, they did not have an idea of what librarians did, but with encouragement and the legacy of Mrs. Hedwig Anwar, we actually are continuously seeking further education, training in technological aspects as well as content aspects. Mr. Rama is also one of those who we always work with, as well as other partners like yourselves from Singlet Station, 
we are very, very lucky to have such strong partnerships with various sectors in the arts. So that contributes to our ecosystem as well. The other thing I want to mention is also legacy is the Asian books for children. She collected it and now it's a showpiece in the Indian National Library. Of course, now the National Library has is is transported it to the in the in the Woodlands Library. Is no, it? no. Is it come, 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 come back. Come back. That's very good, because that is the national collection. You see. That's right. Uh, national Library librarians, for example, are encouraged to research and write, and we have written about the Asian Children's Collection, and this is a very uh, laudable effort by Mrs. Hedwig Anwar as well as the earlier librarians who actually collected these thousands of books to promote Asian children's books. Because at that time, the library was a legacy from our colonial times. It had mostly books that were catered to the English-speaking world. So she wanted very much to build up a collection that was relevant to our part of the world. That's how Asian children's collection came about. And not only that, it made it to the very well-known lists of books worldwide. It has international acclaim, actually. And to this day, we are continuing to, I would say, research and we invite researchers also to, to look into our books as well as to share it, as well as our parents to share it with their children, you know, if they want to come and uh, maybe get to know more about it. But look out for our articles in Bible Asia and also our talks about the Asian children's collection in A Librarian's World and various other platforms we really hope that now that it has come back to uh, the National Library at Level 9, we hope that more people can access this very rich collection, which also includes books in other languages, Chinese, Japanese, even Bahasa, Indonesia, and, and so as many other languages, various formats as well. So you, if you want to do research in those days, you have to go to England or to UN universities. If you want to research on South Asia, you can come to the National Library. See, that's, that's the point of our reference services now. It's become a big, it's more the reference service and the National Library service. In, in most countries, the public library services are separate from National Library services. But in this country, because we have compact both the National Library functions and the library functions, our public library functions are into one body. Yeah, we work as a team mm -hmm. with our public library colleagues and it's a very good synergy that we have. Mm -hmm. So I think in the progress of this podcast, we've been talking a lot about Mrs. Anwar's work and how she tried to make it very accessible, tried to make reading very accessible to the masses. And, you know, we can all tell that her work was very socially conscious as well. But I think it's also worth noting that she was also the first woman director of the library as well. Mr. Rama, could you maybe share a little bit about how librarianship was viewed as a profession back in, in that period of time? Yes, and that period of time, library was not regarded as a profession at all. And in that sense, it's instrumental for library to evolve as a profession during the time of Mrs. Anwar. Mrs. Anwar was the first director, and she was a qualified director, and she had a fellowship of the Library Association of Britain. Fellowship is a very top grade, top, most person in the library, library field will get a fellowship. So in that sense, she organized the library and then 
found out that the library is a different place and it's just a place anybody can run a bookshop but not a library because the library is a special curated place and therefore she made librarians into professionals and she only from her she only chose graduates professions so that was, a, that was the first thing she did was to from now on library became the graduate profession and then she in she felt that every librarian must be trained and she at the beginning she trained librarians for all seasons she was very contact contact conscious and she got scholarships from everywhere possible from colombo plan from 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 her contacts from everybody and that that's why today librarians the former librarians were very well trained and they were all trained overseas and later on when localized training became available she was again initiated the library program training program in the library and she hosted the library association program in the library and that became as a nus degree course later on ntu i think later on became ntu degree course later on but the point is she made the professionals at top grade and at the same time she also felt that like nurses she also felt that there should be a second level profession and therefore she engaged lab technicians lab technicians were second grade and the lab attendants for the third grade and therefore she also conducted training for library technicians and and therefore brought the library profession into a whole category of services i think all that was everything that you just said was so important to understand i think especially because in those days librarianship was actually started out mostly as a women's job most women became librarians because they didn't want to become teachers and it one specific example was mrs anwar herself who came from a family of teachers and then decided nope i'm not going teaching let's see what libraries do for me instead and also because many women took up these roles because there were prospects of going overseas and everything that you just mentioned helped to kind of make it to help to professionalize it as a career that now we also have men who have come in with the expansion of the NLB and the incorporation of the technologies that she introduced resulting in more career prospects and the possibility of development as well could you maybe share a little bit maybe both of you what do you think mrs anwar's impact is on women and women in the arts Yes. Well, actually Mrs. Anwar cut a very elegant figure and the fine art of understatement when she said that she embarked on a career in librarianship because she couldn't find another job. That's what she said. Of course, she was half joking, but like you said, at that time, many ladies they had limited job opportunities in her time. Today, maybe I could share with you what she she said in a speech. This is also from some of the documents that she has donated. Um, to the National Library uh, via the Hedwig Anwar Donor Collection. She was stirred to action, and this is what she said: "With economic independence, you may choose to marry or not to, to have a career or to combine a career with marriage, or to have children or not. It is up to the individual woman to make any of these choices, or combination of choices as wisely as possible in the light of her circumstances, abilities, personality, views." and preferences. Any one of these choices is a valid choice 
and will contribute equally not only to your well-being but also to that of Singapore as a whole. So she was a visionary. Actually, we are the ones who really benefited from this vision because unlike maybe our great-grandmothers, grandmothers, who were not able to speak for themselves, Mrs. Anwar actually provided a voice through her work in so many fields, not just through the libraries, but also in the field of literary arts. The, she was a writer. She promoted reading. She set up various, or rather she drove various initiatives like symposiums, which eventually also uh, led to the formation of Singapore Writers' Week to what we know today, Singapore Writers' Festival. These are choices, of course, because reading opens up a world. Reading opens up a child's mind. And when you open up a child's mind, that's when progress can really begin. One of the things that Mr. Rama said um, when he visited the library was, look, Michelle, Singapore is such a good country. Here, the library is so quiet and very conducive environment for reading. So you can see how our youths have benefited from our library system. There are so many libraries now. You can even get books when you're at home. That's what librarianship, that's what her, Mrs. Anwar's work in advocating reading as well as literary arts has done for us, I feel. So earlier, Mr. Rama mentioned that one of the key aspects of trying to make a culturally relevant book database was the need for local writers to produce books. So another institution in which Hedwig Anwar played a pivotal role was the organisation we now know as the Singapore Book Council, which she co-founded. So Hedrick Anwar was actually appointed the National Book Development Council Director in 1981 and she held on to this role until her retirement as the Director of the National Library and Chairperson of NBDCS in 1988. But she did continue to serve as an Executive Committee member until 1998, so about 10 years. It was launched in 1969 as the National Book Development Council of Singapore and established promotional literacy reading training and publishing programs to strengthen the capabilities of authors and foster a culture of reading and writing. Some of these programs include awards such as the NBDCS Book Award, which ran from 1972 to 1999, the still ongoing Singapore Literature Prize, which was launched in 1991, as well as the Hedrick Anwar Children's Book Award. So maybe at this point, I'll elaborate a little bit more about the Singapore Literature Prize. So it was first launched in 1991 with the initial aim to promote Singapore literary works in English. Its scope has since expanded to include works in Malay, Chinese and Tamil, as well as non-fiction works. When it first started, two of its goals was to open doors for emerging writers, as well as to bolster the reputation of local publishers. Over the years, there's been some debate on its usefulness. For example, in 1992, Mr. Gopal Bharatam, the author of A Candle of the Sun, rejected the award for highly commended prize due to the basis of feeling that the council's criteria were different from his own. In vernacular circles, the prize is seen as less important than the Nanyang Chinese Literature Award for Chinese Works and the Anugara Pursuratan for Malay Books, although Mr. Syed Ali Samait of Malay publisher Pusaka National says that the Singapore Literature Prize is more recognised abroad. 
There have been some arguments from writers and publishers who wonder about the impact on sales and the awards since the prize already preaches to a converted audience. The SLP has also not propelled its winners onto the Straits Times bestseller list, which compiles the best-selling titles for major bookstores in Singapore. With these slight apprehensions, it has resulted in increasingly lesser entries over the years, despite there being more literary works released over the years. I think it's worth noting in 1993 that there were no winners, only consolation prizes, as the council felt like the standard of entries were too low. There were only two merit and three commendation prizes which were given out to participants from the two categories, poetry and drama. Mr. Rama, could you share a little bit about the Singapore Literature Prize? Okay, the Singapore Literature Prize came out of Mr. Noah's concern for awards, for encouraging the local writers to write more books. Now, this was a precursor to the NBGCS Book Prizes, which was started in 1972. In 1972, there was no price in itself, no monetary value in the prices. So, so she slowly increased the prices. Now, what she did was in the 1972, was there were no books published, you know, and very few published, and, and therefore there were no books award, award given, except in 1976 onwards it began. Now, the book awards, she found it as a most important part of the book council. In, because in the book council, you could ask for donations, whereas as a national library, as a government institution, you couldn't. So she drove the book council into funding policies, which the national library was not funded very well at that point. So therefore, the book awards became very important. In 1991, the books were awarded to those Publishers who didn't publish manuscripts. So, so, because manuscripts were most important, and therefore it developed manuscripts. And in 1999 onwards, then we found out that the good books were not taken up by publishers. Publishers are very business minded and they want books that sell. So, the, the best written books are normally do not sell. So therefore, in 2000 onwards, we began to award books, prices, think of literature prices, to, to books that were already published, not pub- unpublished versions of books. Uh, maybe at this point, Mr. Rama, could you share with us a little bit about how you began to be involved with NBDCS? Yes. Now, I was, uh, in, the, in the beginning, the National Library and the Book Council was transparent. The chairman of the book council and the national library of directors national library were one and the same. For example, Mrs. Anwar became the secretary general of the book council in the beginning, but later on she became chairman as a book council. And therefore, when she asked the librarian to do some work for a book council, you had to do. You know, there was no. So in that sense, she invoked the librarians to do much work and also become introduced to publishers, introduced to booksellers and the writers as well because the book council was the only means towards that. So in that sense, uh, the publishers and the book book council was a very important body. Mm. 
And I understand in between 1998 to 2004, you're the chairperson of MBDCS. Yes. Yeah. Could you share a little bit about your time as a chairperson there? Now, in 1999, Mrs. Anwar was no more in the limelight. So there was somebody, there was need for somebody to take over. And that is why I came in at the National Library to become the book council. But at that time, the National Library already changed. The book council had to be completely separate from the National Library. And the book council, as a chairman, I had to develop new ideas to promote books and to promote reading and writing. And that's where the Singapore Literature Prize came in. And that's where the Asian children's writers came in. And writers for children's books came in. And emphasis was Asian books because we felt that library need books. At that time, you know, I was, we used to go through, throughout the world to select books. And each time, our infrastructure was good, but the books were not local. And there we mentioned Singapore collection of books, Singapore section. And Mrs. Anwar was very, very adamant in in also bringing the Singapore collection into Singapore. That so she defined Singapore collection as those published about Singapore, not uh, may not be a national of Singapore at the time. So. In that sense, the Singapore collection has become a very much wider, which also in, included fiction as well as non-fiction. Thank you so much for that. So other initiatives of the NBDCS included the Translation Scheme, which was launched in 1978, which sponsored the translations of books. Sponsorship amount ranged from between $2,000 and $3,000, and the aim was to enable publishers of literary and creative books to reach a wider audience. Anwar said, such translated works will also help local readers to overcome the barriers of language and be able to read good literary works written by authors in another medium of language. Works translated under the scheme included the 1980 Malay novel Ta'ada Jalan Kalua by Suratman Makassan and the 1993 Chinese novel A Man Like Me by Yang Pui Non. The integration of technology in the book world was also seen in the 1994 Festival of Books and Books Fair, which incorporated a comprehensive range of e-formats for literature, decades before the popularity of e-books. Mr. Rama, I think the translation scheme links back to what you were saying much earlier on about how there weren't enough books, books in other languages yes. and that it had to be written. I think the translation scheme is very important. And that's why even today, this translation it's very important. It's emphasized that the National Library has, in fact, translated some of the books into other languages as well. The important thing about translation is that you must pay the translator very well. And translation is of fiction is more difficult than translation of non-fiction. And therefore, this is not well understood by the Singapore public. And there's no money in translation as well. And that, that is why the Book Council today, and even before, Emphasize translation, and and today there's a special course for translations, translators as well. So in that sense, Mrs. Anwar was legacy. It's very important translation scheme because that uh, that invited readers to read about other communities, which they would have missed otherwise. So as an arts manager myself, I'm interested in how she tried to promote the translation scheme. How did she try and get you know, people to be interested to translate the work? 
Yes. Now, first and foremost, the translators, oh, you must know the translators. Now, first you must pay them. And so she got the funding, you know, to the book council to pay them. And that was very important. And those translators are sometimes mentioned in the translated books as well. So therefore, translation as a, as a community, as an important member of the community becomes very important as, at the same time. Not only writers, but translators are important as well. I think the other question that I would like to ask is also about the programs that the Book Council developed and organized to grow reading and writing. I'm thinking of two in particular, the Festival of Books and Book Fair, as well as the National Reading Month. Yes. So just some context for those listening in, the Festival of Books and Book Fair was held annually from 1969 to 1997. It was a nine-day festival. In 1989, it had a record $5.15 million of books sold. In 1990, the team became Reading Odyssey, which was actually the same team as the National Reading Month. And this particular version of the fair had 132 participants, representing 2,000 national, regional, and international publishers, with a total of 502 stands featuring over 160,000 titles. That's a lot. And these titles range from encyclopedias, children's books, and textbooks to adult fiction. There were 20 independent foreign participants, including those from Indonesia and Malaysia. And it was so popular that they had to turn away requests for 100 more cents due to lack of space. In 1992, the team was reading for everyone. And that particular fair gave special attention to children with reading disabilities. What was brought to attention was the lack of suitable books for them, which needs to be well-illustrated simple enough to read with large print. There was also a shortage of audiobooks and books in Braille. A first for the fair was 35 stores featuring electronic publishing equipment, computers and software for publishing books on tape and encyclopedias on laser discs. In 1994, what was interesting about this particular fair was that it sought to widen the scope of the book fair by introducing electronic publishing and modern communication technology. It started thinking a bit more about developing the commercial aspect of the fair and there was a plan to include a rights fair within the next five years which would provide occasions for those in the book trade to make deals with overseas counterparts for the rights to translate, publish and distribute the books in other countries. There were more than 1.4 million visitors at a record 552 stands. This particular edition of the festival was a major regional event and it was reported as the only one to have been held without a break for the last 25 years. In 1995, the team was read to understand. In this particular edition, they actually set up an organising team, recognising that the annual Singapore Festival of Books had become a major event that needed to be steered by a professional team and full-time staff. They included a wide range of activities for children and an even wider usage of technology. Yes, the festival of books and book fair came to end in 1999, I think. And it was the first book festival that was organized by the Book Council. And it became a very big successful. And by 2000, it, it lost steam. And, uh, and by 2000, there were other festivals. Book, bookshops have become 
the popular bookshop as a own festival and the 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 others also became part of the market so therefore the book festival it was organized by both the publishers and the writing community as well by but but organized by the book council you know in that sense the book council played a very important part in promoting books because anybody will remember the book book festival because it was program uh, related as well and also any one time you could book get the best books in singapore and the world for example and and that's the time that book festival was very important at that time and the is program related because the schools were also sending waiting for you know the book festival to, to select books as well so it became a very important part of promotion activity the other short lived one was national reading month which again needed a lot of funding and it it, it it died because there was no funding but the idea was when when it became funded it would became a very big hit because that was the only time when the principals and the schools became involved in the national reading month as well and it became a huge success story later on later on the nlb adapted that program as well so for context the national reading month started in 1982 and was held until 1994 and it was held annually its mission was to train singaporeans in literacy reading publishing library development and the literary arts to build a reading society in a time where singaporeans were behind other countries in their reading habits hedrick anwar actually said our writers are produced from our readers so the reading month was actually a result of a national readership survey that was done and it included workshops seminars exhibitions and conferences in 1989 the team was towards a nation of readers very clearly what the aim of the event was the target was all age groups and for the first time the event included the highly popular Singapore International Festival of Books and Book Fair which was attended in the previous year by 1 million people it also included a books come alive concert a program on poetry appreciation featuring chinese and english poetry reading sessions and workshops for teenagers three drama workshops for teenagers reading workshops, forums and talks organized for parents and teachers. Two of the highlights of the 1989 event was a seminar on children's literature in Singapore as well as an international storytelling festival featuring storytellers from the United Kingdom, Australia, Japan and the United States. In 1990, the team was reading Odyssey. This was the same team as the Festival of Books and Books Fair. The target audience for this particular edition was preschoolers to teens, parents and teachers, and there was a strong emphasis on storytelling. Hedrick Anwar mentioned of this particular edition that the slogan conveys to the public that reading is like an exciting voyage to the unknown future. This is what reading can be. A reader can undertake this journey into the past or future, into space and the unknown, into a world of imagination or into a jungle of facts through white reading. What was special about the 1991 edition was that there were four workshops on how to choose books for children who were 14 years old and below. This was held at the Bukit Merah Branch Library, further emphasizing the need for accessibility. 
maybe I can just add on about what I found out from the Hedwig Anwar donor collection at National Library. So we were given several photo albums of programs as well as initiatives that uh, Mrs. Anwar initiated and which her staff had also helped to promote. And one of these was, of course, like what uh, Mr. Rama said, was the National Reading Month. And I think it was in the late 1980s. And one of our former directors, Mrs. Kianko Lailin, she was um, actually in, in charge of one of these programs. And what she, what she mentioned was that these were held at, amongst the venues that these were held at, was at shopping malls. And she went around making, Mrs. Anwar went around making sure that everything was in order and only left at the very end of the day. So that showed you how much drive she had to make these a success. And not only that, the donor collection also featured a lot of personal documents and a lot of uh, papers written about literacy initiatives, which were typescripts, which along the right-hand side column or left-hand side column, there were actual writings by Mrs. Anwar. She would edit and re-edit and then put thoughts into it. So it was from these documents that I found out that she had worked uh, tirelessly to promote reading Mm. Yeah, for this first hand, that's what I saw. Yeah. And something that she very famously said was also that our writers are produced from our readers, which has also probably explained her drive as well. Yes. One other thing that uh, I mentioned that she also founded the Singapore Book World, which is a publication, which was no more in existing, but 50 years it existed. Now, the Singapore Book World is very important because it also was a critique. So every librarian and every book, book world person could write a criticism of the book that's published. And that was in, in all four languages. And that was printed in the book world. And also there were articles about the Singapore book world, about the Singapore book world in the world itself. So therefore it was very important document and very important now, especially when you want to research history, Singapore book world becomes a very important part of the Singapore world of books. So Michelle, earlier you mentioned the Singapore Writers Week and this was actually something that Serene mentioned in episode one as well as part of her episode about the Singapore Arts Festival. So in 1986, there was the introduction of the Writers Week which remained as part of the Singapore Arts Festival until 1990 and would subsequently spin off to become the Singapore Writers Festival in 1991. Could you maybe elaborate a little bit about that? Yes, I first chanced upon in photographs within the Hedwig Anwar donor collection of symposiums, literary symposiums in the early 1980s. And she was seated with Professor Edwin Dambu, as well as many of our pioneer writers. And I was wondering what these symposiums were. Later on, I found out that these events, they were part of the efforts to promote Singapore locally written books as well as platforms to critique, as platforms to encourage writing, our own writing. Singapore Writers' Week later, it progressed, it grew, and we have what we now know as Singapore Writers' Festival. It was, in the 1980s, Singapore Writers' Week was a modest enterprise compared to what it is now. So, Mrs. Anwar, as well as, of course, the staff of 
our library played a, I feel a very a very critical role in the promotion of these books to spread awareness, to create a young generation that grew up reading and being proud of our own voice. Now that's very important, as we see how previously. A lot of, maybe people didn't really have an awareness of what Singapore literature is. But, you, but now we have Singlet Station. We have Poetry Festival Singapore. We have so many Singapore-based writers writing not only for Singapore, but for the world. I think that's one of the legacies that Mrs. Anwar, as well as our pioneer writers, they played a, such a great role in pushing forward our literary voice. I think... Uh Michelle mentioned Edwin Tambu. <laughs> just want to mention the fact that Edwin Tambu had told me once before that if Edwin Anwar was not librarian, thank God she was a librarian, she would have taken my post at English literature level, as a professor of English literature. Also, the other note is about the Singapore Writers' Festival. Singapore has been known as a commercial city the ugly Singaporean was the term used later. But she converted the ugly Singaporean into a holistic figure, as a nice Singaporean, as a good Singaporean. And therefore, Singapore became a regional hub and an international hub for writers as well. And Writers' Festival continues the tradition. And in that sense, is Singapore contributing to the writers' world besides economy world as well. We are proud of our own voice now, our literary mm. voice. And that's something that has been achieved within a few decades. And I think that's really fantastic. That's a legacy of Mrs. Anwar, the library, as well as our pioneer writers. So I think over the time of this podcast, we've really gone through many different areas of what Hedrick Anwar has done um, for the literary arts in Singapore, especially in developing a culture of reading and writing, um, along with you know, mentions of quite a few organisations that she helped to co-found and develop along the way, some of which are still initiatives we still have right now in our day and age as well. So um, with that, I'd like to thank Mr. R. Ramachandran as well as Ms. Michelle Heng for joining us for our session today. Thank you very thank much, Shani. Thank you Charlene. very much. A very good session. You've just come to the end of another episode of Backlogs, an arts management podcast series. If you'd like to learn more about any of the key events, people and institutions mentioned in this particular episode, head over to our website at backlogs.sg. That's B-A-C-K-L-O-G-U-E-S dot S-G to find further information pertaining to each episode's content. You may find them under show notes on the respective pages for each episode. For more resources with regard to arts management in Singapore, head to the resources page on the website. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at backlogs.sg, which will be updated every time a new episode is released. Share your comments with us by tagging us at backlogs.sg or using the hashtag backlogs. SG. If you've enjoyed what you heard today and would like more, do support our fundraising efforts. We are raising funds to support the operational costs of manpower, equipment and resources in order to keep this podcast going. You may find the donation link on our website as well as our social media channels. This first podcast series is presented by Centre 42 and Singlet Station, 
together with researchers Dr. Ho Su Fen and Dr. Cheryl Julia Lee. It is supported by the National Arts Council Singapore. Thank you for listening. <laughs>